Well, <laughs> well, my name is Bob Kedlisek. I've been one of the pastors here at Bridgewater for about 18 years, and I've been really excited about sharing this message with you about the starting point of Christianity. Everything has a starting point, right? Um, little trivia thing here. Guess what year Mario Brothers debuted? Anyone know what year it started? Go ahead. Uh, 1960. There weren't even computers in 1960, man, but that is a good guess. It was a long time ago. Not, not really to me, but I remember it. 80, 80, before, 83, 1983, which means Mario is in his 40s and ripe for a midlife crisis, right? <laughs> So everything has a starting point. A game had a starting point. And uh, here's some other starting point dates. Let's see if you can guess. This one will be a little bit e a lot easier. Um, October 12th, 1492. What was that the starting point of? That's right. The Europeans discovered the, the, the New World, the Americas. Actually, Columbus discovered the Bahamas. In 1492. And so, yeah, obviously, other people had discovered it thousands of years before, but that was when the Europeans. How about, how about uh, July 4th, 1776? Start of our country, right? 12 out of the 13 colonies ratified the Declaration of Independence. The holdout was New York. They signed it later. But, yeah, and then how about, how about this one? July 9th, 1994. What was that? That would be my anniversary. So that was when, when I was married. May not be important to you, but it was very important to me. Everything has a starting point, right? A country has a starting point, a marriage, a life, uh, a game. You know, I, uh, everything has a starting point. And the question I want to ask you this morning is, what is the starting point of your faith? And I'm not looking for a date. Because a lot of you, a lot of us, we don't have dates. You might say, well, there were eight different times when I prayed, and I'm not sure which one stuck, you know. So, so, I, you know, so this is not about a date. This is what I'm really asking is, why do you believe what you believe? And this is true whether you're a Christian here or online, whether you're watching or here in the room and you're a Hindu or a Buddhist or a Muslim or an atheist or agnostic or secular or whatever. Why do you believe what you believe. And, and this is important because so many times we find ourselves, we climb up this ladder in life and then we get to the top and realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. And I have built on, your starting point matters, what you build upon. And so what is the starting point of your faith? And here's something I just want us to be honest about that I think we don't talk about enough in church. The starting point of my faith when I was a kid is no longer sufficient to me as an adult. Why did I believe what I believe? In fact, I asked my, my 13-year-old son this, and I think he's still in a transition period um, because he's like, what? See, when, when I was five, I, I was in Sunday school, and Mrs. Shoemaker had the flannel graph out. Any of you remember flannel graphs? Okay, yeah. You remember flannel graphs? Wow. Took a while for stuff to get to Susquehanna County. You know. <laughs> Anyways, she had the flannel graph and she was explaining, you know, put the little cross up there and the little tomb with the stone and all of that and explaining how Jesus died and rose again. And I believed it. Why? Because Mrs. Schumacher maker told me so. 
and because my parents told me so, and because that's the way I was raised, and that was the foundation and the starting point of my faith as a child. But you know what? I grew up, and I realized that my parents weren't always right. (laughs) And then I grew up more and realized they were right more than I thought, but... But then I also realized that that's not the way everyone has been raised. And other people were raised differently. And if the foundation of my faith was that's the way I was raised, then when I find someone who was raised differently, it no longer, it's no longer there. There is no foundation. And some of you, the foundation of your faith was an experience that you had, maybe even as an adult. And you had this great experience and it felt, you know, you know like the burdens of your sin were gone and you felt as light as air for the first time and you felt such intense joy. And, and that's, that's a starting point. But you know what? Then you have another experience, maybe of despair. And maybe it's like the ceiling is made out of iron and your prayers seem like they're going nowhere and you don't feel God anymore. And if... If the foundation of your faith was an experience, then another experience will take it away. And so many of us, as we've become adults, we've realized, like, you know, the faith of my childhood is no longer sufficient to hold me as an adult. It's, it's not strong enough. It's not solid enough. It's not a sufficient starting point. So, so what I want to talk about today is what is a, a good starting point for your faith, even as an adult? And um, I'm going to look at what the Apostle Paul had as his starting point. So we're going to get in a time machine. We're going to go back to 55 AD. This is less than 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Um, I say this a lot, but the Bible is not a book. It's a library. And the New Testament part of this library, as well as the Old Testament, is not arranged chronologically. Okay, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were not the first books of the New Testament written. James was, which is near the end. And, and the letter to the Corinthian church called 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest of all the biblical books, one of the first five or six ever written. And in 55 AD, this is what the Apostle Paul said. He, passed, he says, I passed on to you what was most important. In fact, some translations say of first importance. That sounds like a starting point. Here's the starting point, most important, and what had also been passed on to me. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. And he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day, just as the scriptures said. And he was seen by Peter and then by the 12. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Again, this is less than 25 years after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Historically to us, when he was writing this, this would be like something that happened on 9-11. You know, how many of you remember 9-11? Yeah, most are still alive and if someone is a 9-11 denier, and no, it never really happened, there, you, you can't do that now. Maybe in 80 years you can try to pass that off. But, but now it's too close. There's too many of us who were, who were there. I was there four days before it happened. I was in New York City and saw the towers. There's a man in our group who went to the top. And then we had men in our church who signed up for the National Guard immediately after it happened, and they were sent down. And, and one of them told me, Rob and Jared, and they said, you know, the pictures don't do it justice. I said, why? Because it can't encapsulate the smell of rotting human bodies. And, you know, people can deny, you can't deny and make something up in the lifetimes of people who were there. 
And he's saying that here. And so what is he saying? He's saying the death and resurrection of, of Jesus, according to the scriptures, is the starting point of Christianity. And I want to just delve into just two passages, and there are dozens, if not hundreds, of them from the Old Testament. But I want to talk about the. He, he's saying, this is the foundation. Christ died for our sins, just as the scriptures said. And I want to focus on that just as the scripture said part. Because now here's what happens is if there is no resurrection. He goes on to tell, talk about this in the letter. If Christ has not been raised, then all our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. And we apostles would be lying about God. And that would be true of me too. If Jesus did not rise from the dead, I'm not some good hearted, you know, pastor just trying to help people be better. No, I'm a liar and I'm doing something that's evil. And honestly, if the resurrection isn't true, I want to know. So I stop propagating a lie that is wasting people's lives. The stakes are high. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is useless and you're still guilty of your sins. You're not forgiven if he isn't raised. And in that case, all who died believing in Christ are lost. That means everyone we know who is a believer, who is trusting in Jesus Christ to forgive their sins, who's dead, is in hell. Or maybe they've ceased to exist. And if our hope in Christ is only for this life, we're more to be pitied than anyone in the world. <laughs> so there's not this middle road that a lot of people want to take of, oh, you know, it's okay. You believe your truth. I'll believe my truth. No, there's only one, one truth. And if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then this is a waste of time. Or worse, we're, we're a bunch of liars spreading and propagated harmful negative falsehoods. And so Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. What is Paul talking about? And I just want to go to Psalm 22. Um, it's before Psalm 23. And um, a lot of you are familiar with that, but you got to go through Psalm 22 before you can get to Psalm 23. And it starts like this. My God, my God, why have you abandoned or for forsaken me? Some of you that are very familiar with the Bible, you're like, that's not Psalm 22. That wasn't written 900 years before Jesus was born. That's, that's what Jesus said on the cross in Matthew 27. And you're right. Jesus was quoting Psalm 22 to fulfill that as prophecy. Now, does that convince me that Jesus was the Messiah? No. It convinces me that Jesus was familiar with the Old Testament. And of course he was. He was a, he was a rabbi. He was a teacher. I'm a skeptic. I don't know if you know that. Is that okay to have a pastor be a skeptic? You tell me something and I'm, I'm like, mm, I probably won't tell it to your face. Eh, I'm not so sure about that one. <laughs> but I'll be like, hmm, Interesting. And, and I'm a skeptic, and approaching this as a skeptic, that's not good enough. So he quotes the Bible while he's on the cross. Big deal. Um, this is a Psalm. This is actually verse 7. I, I should have corrected that. Everyone who sees me mocks me. This is more prophecy of what, how will the Messiah die? They sneer and shake their heads saying, is, is this the one who relies on the Lord? Then let the Lord save him if the Lord loves him so much. Let the Lord rescue him. And again, if you're familiar with the Bible, you think, wait a minute, that sounds a lot like Matthew 27. The people passing by shouted abuse, shaking their heads in mockery. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him, for he said, I'm the son of God. 
So Jesus has to die in a way that he could say that first saying and in in a situation where he could be mocked. Again, that's not really hard. There's lots of methods of death that can involve people mocking you. Stoning was one of the ways that they killed people 900 BC in Israel. And you could mock them as you threw rocks at them and killed them. And so again, that's not, but it's another one. It's like, okay, so he, that, that's got to be the case. You have to have a death, can't be beheading, you know, can't be impalement, has to be a death that is some kind of prolonged time so that people can mock you while you die. And then he said, my life is poured out like water. Well, John 19, 34 says, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and blood and water poured out. Again, there, there is a, a condition when a human being, there's certain viruses that can cause it, but when you're under severe trauma, there is a sack of, of water, very, very little of it, around your heart and under severe trauma that, that fills with a lot of water, puts extra pressure on the heart, sometimes enough to stop the beating heart. And what this soldier did to make sure Jesus was dead is he's got a spear and he poked through the side, piercing into Jesus' heart, and this water flowed out. Now that's starting to get a little freaky but, but, you know, this is poetry. My life is poured out like water, not like literally water poured out of my side. So, you know, that's not necessarily convincing to me completely. And all my bones are out of joint. Well, what method of death would take your bones out of joint? Again, you know, hanging. Um, I mean, I won't get into lots of methods of death in the ancient world, but this is, this is a conundrum because, you know, crucifixion was not invented until over 800 years after this was written. And when you were nailed to a cross, they then would take ropes or they'd push that, pull that cross up and then set it into the hole, drop it into the hole, at which point your bones would go out of joint. And now it's starting to get kind of Like, wow, that's really quite the coincidences. And my strength is dried up like sun-baked clay and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. Again, so you have to have a method of death where you're dying over a prolonged period of time so that you could get really thirsty. And again, this is what happened with Jesus. And John 19, 28, Jesus knew everything was now finished. And to fulfill the scriptures, he said, I'm thirsty. Again, he knew the Bible. He knew what he had to say. He knew this prophecy. That doesn't help But um, my skepticism. But boy, it's starting to add up. And then we got this one. They pierced my hands and my feet. What method of death, 900 some B.C., during the reign of King David involved piercing someone's hands and feet. There were none. There were none until crucifixion. In fact, this is such a strong prophecy that the response of skeptics to this is it can't be pierced. That word, it can't be that word because if it's that word, it has to be another word. And lo and behold, in the oldest Jewish copies of Psalm 22, around the 900s, so this is a little over 1,000 years old, maybe 1,100 years old copies of Psalm 22, um, it doesn't say pierced, it says lion. A lion, my hands and my feet. Now that doesn't really make sense, 
but it's ancient poetry. You can kind of fill in the blanks and say, like a lion, my hands and feet, or like a lion around my hands and feet. I'm not sure why they would talk about a lion going around someone's hands and feet, not their body. But, you know, so, so this, is, this is what people believe about this passage, that it doesn't say pierced. Because if it says pierced, man, what are they? That's an astronomically impossible prophecy you know, to just hand, happen by random chance, that had to have been some foreknowledge. And so it's got to be like a lion. Well, the, the problem is, though, the oldest copies of, that Christians have and made of Psalm 22, which are 600 years older, say they pierced. And so if you're a skeptic, the Christians lied. The Christians like erase that. And actually, it's just the difference of one letter. So they just changed that one letter. They got pierced and they're like, ha, now we, you know, through cheating, we have a prophecy that's almost, you know, unarguable. And so then the Dead Sea Scrolls came out and they said, ah, the Dead Sea Scrolls discovered in the 1940s, there was like a, a pinch point because there's like one guy who had authority over all of them and he was trying to translate them all himself and there's like thousands of scraps of paper and so it kind of got jammed together and so nobody was looking at these and so it wasn't until the 1990s and computers came out and they could scan stuff and send it around the world that they really started sifting through these Dead Sea Scrolls and they found Psalm 22. And they found that one word had actually disintegrated and there wasn't anything there. So they're like, ah, oh, we're never going to know. Like whether, you know, the, you know and it, this, this ancient text had that. And then they found something called the Nahal Hever Scroll. And this is the area it was taken from, another desert-like region in Israel. And they got this scroll, and it had Psalm 22, and it was published in 1997, but this thing stuff takes time. People have to peer review it. They have scholars. They do carbon-14 tests, and blah, 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 blah. But that word was there. And it was written at the time, around the time of Jesus' crucifixion, if not before. You know, they're not exact. This it could have been written about the time of his birth. could have been written, but it was written by a Jew. It was copied by Jews, Essenes. They were a particular Jewish sect that separated themselves from society. They were kind of like the monks, the Jewish monks of, of Jesus' day. And so what did the word, what word was there? Pierced. It was Pierced. And so, with unarguable evidence, what would the skeptics, how do the skeptics respond to this? They, of course, would believe, right? Because it's right in front of their noses and they've carbon dated the paper and, and the, the, the handwriting analysis all worked out to that period and all of this stuff. And so, they have to believe, right? Because it's, if you think they believe, you don't know human beings. We don't believe facts. We believe what we want to believe. And their response to this was, well, that man, that Jewish Essene who copied this over 2,000 years ago, he must have misspelled it. Or some of them are saying, well, maybe hands doesn't mean hands and feet doesn't mean feet. <laughs> you know, and, and they're just, why? Because the facts don't matter. No amount of evidence. In fact, it was either Richard Dawkins or Christopher Hitchens. I can't remember which one. I was watching a YouTube of him, and he was saying in this debate, and whoever, whichever one was, he's, he's 
passed away since then. But in this debate, he was saying, you know, I used to say the only thing, that, the only way I would believe in God is if God actually appeared in front of me and said, I am God, believe in me. You know, in this bright glowing light. And he says, I've, I've come to realize that that's not true. Even if God appeared to me in a bright glowing light and said, I am God, I would not believe God exists. Because I would think that I was drugged. I would think that I was having a hallucination. I would think that I'd have some tumor pressing on my brain in some way. And he says that I would not believe. No matter what evidence is presented to me, it doesn't matter. There is no God by faith. He believed in what he believed. And at least he was honest enough to say it was by faith and not by evidence. What is your faith based on? My faith is based on that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, prophesied hundreds of years in advance. They divided my clothes among themselves, Psalm twenty-two, eighteen, and threw dice for my garments. I brought this in. I was able to go on our 25th anniversary trip, which was on our 28th year of marriage, went to England and uh, bought this. It's uh, a Roman die. So this is not a relic. This is not the dice that the Roman soldiers used to gamble for Jesus' clothes, okay? If you think it is, I'll sell it to you for $100,000, but (laughs) it's not. It's from England, you know, but anywhere you find a significant settlement of ancient Roman soldiers, you almost always find dice. They were great gamblers. And here, 900 years ahead of time, they're saying, they're they're gonna throw dice to determine who gets my clothes. And that's exactly what the New Testament in John says they did. They said, hey, this is a one-piece garment. If we rip it into three parts, it'll be worth a whole lot less. Let's throw the dice and see. This stuff happened in real life, in a real place. And there's archaeological digs and all this stuff. Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. I want to just do one more, and it's Daniel 9.26. Daniel 9.26 says, 483 years after the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, the Christ would be cut off or killed. So the, the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem was given by King Artaxerxes of Persia in 444 or 445 B.C., how do we know this? Not from the Bible. We know this from archaeology and, and other things. And so this is, this is not a biblical proof text that, where the Bible proves itself. This is archaeology says, yeah, Artaxerxes on 444, 445 BC said the Jews can go back and rebuild Jerusalem. They're allowed to return to the land. And so then you do 483 years after that. Now, a Jewish calendar year at that time when that was written, was 360 days. Again, this is affirmed by archaeology and other places and by the biblical record of what their year was and the months and how long each month was. So 360 days, 483 years, becomes 476 years. And so 476 years after 445 or 444 B.C. comes to 32 or 33 A.D. When do you think Jesus was killed? If you believe Jesus was killed on a Friday, he was crucified in 33 AD. If you believe he was crucified on a Thursday, and there's different arguments and debate, that was 32 AD. The only possible two years that he, to fulfill that prophecy in Daniel 9, he had to die one of those two years. In fact, he had to die one of those years, but we're really not sure which one it was. 
because archaeology isn't exact and precise sometimes. What are the chances? Let me tell you, there, there's also other prophecies in Daniel about the rise of the Greek empire and then it's split and how it splits and where it splits and then the Roman empire and how it takes over the Greek empire after the Greek took over the Persian. And there's all these prophecies about that. And, and they are so precise that scholars like this one, this, was, uh, this commentary was written by um, Daniel Smith Christopher. And like a lot of biblical commentator writers and biblical scholars and archaeologists, he loves the Bible. He spent his life studying the Bible. He doesn't believe a word of it. And so when he comes to Daniel, you know, I open this up and he says in here, he says essentially, he says, Daniel could not have been written any earlier than 150 BC. Why? Because if it was written earlier than 150 BC, then the writer of Daniel knew the future and no human being can know the future. And there is no God. And so it had to be written 150 BC, later than 150, more recent than 150 BC. And that was all fine and dandy because we had no physical copy of Daniel that was that old until the Dead Sea Scrolls came out. And again, there was that log jam. And so it's only been until computers and you know, imaging, that they're able to, to date some of these things, multiple copies of Daniel, and they have a copy of Daniel from 150 BC or earlier and a commentary that's just as old. If you know anything about sacred texts, it's got to be around along a while before you start writing commentaries. And what are the chances of finding a copy 150 BC basically all the scholars say it had to be written at least a hundred years before that, because this is a copy of a copy of a copy. And there's even a commentary about it and all the, and, and so in the face of that, I found an article where, where this Daniel Smith Christopher responds to that. And his response is the carbon dating is wrong. The calligraphy, you know, the, the handwriting analysis is wrong. The evidence is wrong. Because if it was true, if all the evidence was true, then that would prove that there is a supernatural knowledge of things before they happened. And that can't be true. I don't care what the evidence says. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. And Paul is saying here, this is the foundation of his Christianity, and I think it's a good foundation for your Christianity too, that Christ died for our sins just as the scriptures said. The year, the way, I don't even have time to go to Isaiah 53. There's a whole bunch of other prophecies there, other prophecies about his birth, about all, all sorts of that, and it just adds up and adds up, and just one or two of these are like overwhelming to me, but you throw them all together and you're like, you got to, you you got to be crazy to not believe. you got to have so much faith to not believe that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and then he's buried, and then he rose again on the third day, just as the Scriptures said. And so if this is true, how should the resurrection change you? Maybe the foundation of your faith, even, even today, maybe, maybe you, you had lost that foundation of your faith because it was an experience, and then you had other experiences. I was talking to a young woman in our church, and she said, I never felt God. 
like those other people I grew up with when I was a teenager. They felt God when I was in my early 20s. I can tell they had an experience with God and I never had that experience. And so I figure God doesn't love me or maybe he's not real or, or I just can't, can't follow him because my, I, I thought the foundation of my faith needed to be an experience or a feeling. No. This is, this is the foundation of our faith. Um, the events that actually happened that have been proven over and over and over again through archaeology, through, through, through science, through you know, logic and reason, through all sorts of different things. This is the foundation. And if this is true, what does that mean about your life? I want to encourage you. We have like 70 copies of this, I think. How good is good enough? I want to encourage you. We're giving them away. They're at the Welcome Center. If anyone wants one, go there and grab it. Um, if you want to give it to someone, read it first. It, it's, it's, the, it's my kind of book. I think I could read it in like less than two hours, okay? And if you're a slow reader, if you're like my son, you'll read it in an hour. Um, if you're a slow reader, maybe four or five. But how good is good enough? What does God want? If Jesus did die, if Jesus did rise from the grave, and I'm not even getting into this, an Easter message from a couple of years ago, all the evidence for his resurrection. But, you know, if that is true, what does God want from me? Does he want you just to be good? Is that what he wants? Read this book. It explains more about that. And I think in a very compelling way, maybe take one, read it, give it to somebody and say, hey, this, you got to read it first. Don't give someone a book you've never read. You know, you got to be able to recommend it and say, hey, this explained things in a way I, that, that really opened my eyes. But, but I want to tell you today, here's why Jesus died and rose again. And this is what I understood for the first time when I was five years old, that it wasn't just an historical event, but there was something I needed to do with that. And what I need to do is I need to ask Jesus to forgive me for my sins and to take my penalty and payment. That's a step of humility. I'm not good enough. I can never be good enough. I can't earn it. And I want Jesus to take my hell for me. And then number two, he doesn't want you to be good. He wants your whole life. He wants everything. Um, he wants you to surrender to him. He wants to be your Lord and master and savior he wants to be your God. Are you ready to believe and to trust? Maybe not in the Jesus of your childhood. You know, when I was a child, I thought as a child. I acted as a child. I reasoned as a child. But when I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. And I'm telling you, there is an adult version of your faith that maybe you've never really grappled with, but there is an adult response as well of surrender and forgiveness that we all need to do also. I'm going to close this in a salvation prayer, and then the band's going to come up and close in a song, very appropriate. His name is Jesus, and that's the foundation of our faith. Heavenly Father, I just thank you for um, bringing us here today. I thank you that you don't expect us to have a blind faith. God, I thank you that you have given us enough breadcrumbs, enough 
bricks on the road and arrows for even the strongest skeptic. But God, the problem isn't our minds. The problem is our heart. No matter what our minds tell us is true, if we don't want it to be true, we'll close our eyes, we'll close our minds, and uh, we'll walk away. So God, I just pray that you'd open our, our will today to surrender to you. And God, just as I pray this prayer, Lord, as people are watching online, as people are in this room, if anyone has never given their lives to Jesus Christ, may they pray these words silently with me, that your Holy Spirit just invade them so that they can make this decision of the will to, to follow you. God, I, I know I'm a sinner and I've done things wrong that have hurt other people and have, have hurt you. And I just ask that you would forgive me of everything I've done wrong and punish Jesus instead of punishing me. And God, out of gratitude for all that you've done for me, I just ask that, I, I just tell you that I'm going to give you my life. Lord, help me to, from this day forward, to live for you 100%. I want you to be my Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As we sing this song,